0: Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, come to be sacrificed for the atonement of our sins will, like the Passover lambs before him, not have any bones broken as he pictures for us the final Passover. over lamb does not prove his worth by resisting death, but by dying. The fact that Jesus could have, but did not come down from the cross, fulfills his purpose in coming as the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2. It is the very fact that Jesus did not save himself that he can save us. Now, according to Mark's gospel account, one of these revolutionaries never let up with his insult, his verbal injuries, his mockery. He expressed no concern for God. He represents the unbelief of the world. He, he, he expressed no, no repentance, no guilt, no concern for forgiveness. He's about to die, but he doesn't care that he's going to meet God. He might have even believed. And it's interesting to me that he will hear no word from Jesus. No warning. No argument. No defense, no promise, only silence. Maybe you're here today and you're saying in your heart, you know, if I only had evidence that Christ was really the Son of God and the coming King, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You need nothing more than what you already have. You do not lack evidence. You lack interest. And you lack the humble admission of everyone in this auditorium who mirror the humility and brokenness of sinners who understand they're going to meet God and they are not ready are you
1: the king of glory our savior who is risen we celebrate him today and i encourage you to take your hymnals as we sing together of that glory 273 christ arose for since he is arisen we have hope and joy let's sing of it together stand as we sing. I'd like to share with you by way of video an interesting aspect of our church ministry that allows you to become more connected to who we are. So just direct your attention to the screens for the next few minutes, if you would.
2: Coming to Colonial for the first time is intimidating for anyone. Finding your place in the colonial family can leave you feeling like a long lost relative. Penny Tramp and her son Chad were definitely anxious on their first visit.
3: We had come from a small church for so long and then to come to a big church you're a little overwhelmed. It was just a little scary going to classes and and not knowing people and you just I, I guess I just didn't want to get lost in the shuffle.
2: Although they felt welcomed and cared for on their visit. They began to wonder how they'd ever make a meaningful connection in such a large church.
3: I was talking to a friend of mine that attends Colonial, and I was asking her, how do you get connected? And she was telling me about the flocks and how neat they were. I think one Sunday after Sunday morning service, we went forward to talk to Pastor Davey, and he was telling us to connect with a flock. so we went online and connected. And I was shocked to, to find out how many people that attend Colonial that are right here in Clayton.
2: Flocks are community groups intended to provide natural connections with people living near you who also attend Colonial. The goal is to connect families to ministry and to each other, facilitated by one of Colonial's deacons. Their deacon, Lloyd Solis, and his wife Mary quickly contacted the tramps in order to get them plugged in at Colonial
3: to me, to be able to connect them with all the ministries at Colonial that will allow them to use the spiritual gifts that God has given and the passion that God's given them for ministry, then that's the plus. Just being able to connect them to what Colonial has to offer because there's so much.
2: Immediately, the Tramps found themselves surrounded by ministry opportunities right in their own community. They've discovered what it is to experience life in the body of Christ. To have community with people that are in
1: our community locally I think is really good just because those are people that I can get together with during the week and to to have fellowship just outside of church, whether it be over coffee at Starbucks or
2: just going out to lunch. The Tramps and the rest of their flock are grateful to Mary and Lloyd Solis for their commitment to serve them, but Lloyd places the praise back on each of them.
0: I think the real key to the successful flock are the flock members, and that is men and women who are willing and even
3: have a desire to allow God to love others through them.
4: And that's a successful flock.
2: The Tramps are now very involved at Colonial. From Bible studies to ABFs, they've found their place in the family. And they're now attending Greenhouse to become members.
3: I think flocks are important because we drive 30 minutes to go to church. It brings Colonial to our community and it makes our church feel like it's in our community and not that it's 30 minutes away.
1: It's worth your time to get involved. Just to to have that personal interaction, it's been a big blessing. Um, just to have that small group fellowship and just to see people's hearts in the ministry there has been really huge and that's really something I would want other people to have, um, have that kind of fellowship.
0: By the time of Christ's crucifixion, there were some 30,000 men who were crucified in Palestine alone, according to historical documents. It would have been a normal assignment for Roman soldiers to have as their duty for the day the execution of some political prisoner, some insurrectionist, some hardened criminal that had run out of appeals. Roman soldiers had mastered the use of the whip to bring criminals to what they called quote, near death unquote, before nailing them to a cross. But never would Roman soldiers ever encounter the death of anyone like the Lord Jesus. In fact, I I doubt they had much knowledge of Christ's life. They more than likely met the Lord outside Pilate's judgment hall as they were given him to take up the hill. So most of what they would know about Christ would be things they discovered this day. And I've gone back through the gospel accounts as we've studied this Conversions at Calvary series. And I've, and I've seen or tried to see things through their eyes. It would certainly be the actions of our Lord that would be significant. His spirit. They would be so different from anyone they'd ever seen die on a cross. And so by the time that Jesus dies, the centurion and his soldiers place their faith in him as... The Son of God. What happened? Well, we'll go through several gospel accounts rather quickly. You can turn to Luke chapter 23, and I'll move from there to Matthew, over to John, back to Luke, several times you can try to keep up. But for the most part, uh, I'll try to show you that it is indeed in Scripture. Uh, The commanding officer over this scene is never named. Tradition has handed down to us that his name was Longinus. But that sounds like something you buy at the drugstore when you have a cold. I'm not sure if that was it or not. But the Bible refers only to his rank. He's called the centurion. That's simply Latin for 100. We use that word, transliterating it, and we get our word century, which means 100 years. But that title tells us something about this soldier. He would have been experienced, a veteran to some degree. He would have been loyal to the Roman Empire. He would have been skillful. He would have been able to command others. And so because of his skill and his loyalty and his ability and and his experience, he was given the command of 100 of the best soldiers. In fact, he was directly related to Pilate and the things that involved this highest political leader there in that land. He was entrusted with difficult assignments. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ would have been one of his most volatile assignments yet. The, the mob, as you know, is close to rioting. He probably wondered at some point if they'd ever make it to the hill for the crucifixion. To make matters worse, as you know, Jesus stumbled and fell under the weight of the cross beam that he was carrying. And so the centurion had to enlist. Uh, he had to draft into immediate service someone else to carry that beam, which would have caused... The crowd to grow even angrier. More than likely, this centurion had never seen the hatred and utter lack of compassion for any man like this man. Now, Matthew's gospel informs us that after seeing, he says, several things, after seeing several things, these events, after seeing and hearing things related to just one more crucifixion of one more criminal. They are brought to faith. What are those things? Well, I want to rehearse several of them to you. There are several I'll have to leave out for the sake of time. But the first event that would have struck these soldiers as unique was the fact that they hear Pilate declare this criminal to be innocent. In Luke's gospel in chapter 23, in a rather unprecedented move, uh, Pilate says to the mob back in verse 22, I find no guilt in him. It's a declaration of the innocence of Christ. So as Pilate hands Jesus over to the centurion, understand that that he and his soldiers would normally expect to hear the crimes against the state that would justify this sentence of death. But instead, in fact, Matthew adds that they watch Pilate call for a basin of water and they see him ceremonially wash his hands and say, I am innocent of this man's blood. We, we have that same expression today where we talk of washing our hands of something. We want nothing to do with it. We don't want to be connected with it. Pilate will be forever connected with it. But he washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. In Luke's gospel, I find no guilt in him. He's done nothing wrong. No doubt this got the centurion's attention. A soldier who had given his life to protect and uphold the law of the land. Now his leaders just announced that this criminal never did break any law. The second event that he would have witnessed was an unusual exchange between Christ and a group of women. It's often overlooked as he trudges up the hill. As they're making their way, in fact, through the streets of Jerusalem, there's this unusual statement. In fact, in verse 28, it appears. Notice, but Jesus, turning to them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children. And then he goes on to prophesy the coming judgment. So they're part of this group. Verse 27. uh, These women were mourning and lamenting him. You need to understand that they're not so much weeping because of their belief and faith in him. But because they're in remorse over the fact that a Jewish man is going to have to be executed. In such an excruciating horrific way. In fact we'll see them show up in uh, in just a little bit again. But instead of feeding off their pity and their compassion and kindness, Jesus says to them, which would have been so unusual to the centurion and these soldiers, where he says to them, Don't weep for me. You need to weep for yourselves and for your children because the judgment of God is coming. In other words, don't be concerned about me, be concerned about your own families. Even in this hour, the compassion of our Lord causes him to stop on a road that's leading to his execution and, and, and share with them his pity. Deliver to them his compassion and his warning. You have to understand, by, at this point, Jesus is beaten beyond recognition. He's on his way to die, and yet he delivers pity and compassion for others because they're going to die. This would have been so odd to these soldiers and the centurion. They're, they're well-worn. In fact, they're, they're, they, they don't hear that the cries of the criminals that they have overseen in the executions begging for mercy. They've, they've grown to, to a point they don't care. They would have heard this. Have they ever seen a condemned man care about anybody else on his way to his own death? That was the point. They would be struck by the repeated evidence over and over again that Christ didn't seem to care about himself. Third, they would have been mystified at Christ's refusal to drink the wine mixed with myrrh. History records for us that these daughters of Jerusalem, out of their compassion for the condemned, would arrive at the hill... And they're in the group following the criminals and they would be there as well. They they were armed with a particular drink, a narcotic drink, wine mixed with myrrh, which deadened the pain of the crucified victim. So they're there to offer it. And they offer it to Christ. Mark's gospel tells us that when they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, maybe translated gall, it's that narcotic intended to help the sufferer suffer less Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 15, verse 23, that Jesus Christ refused to drink it. Later on, he'll drink sour wine. He's thirsty. But he won't drink this narcotic. Why not? You would expect, and the soldiers would expect, those criminals to ask for more. God refused it. Why? Because Jesus Christ has work to do on the cross. He has things to say. He's not going to be in a stupor. He's he's not going to face death with an anesthetic so so that instead every word he says can be trusted. Every final act he performs can be recorded and, and, and you'll find it's freighted with divine meaning. He has prophecies to fulfill on the cross. And by the way, he has some souls to save. And it soon becomes obvious to these soldiers that he wants to save theirs. It begins to dawn on them in the fourth event. I'll call it the fourth event. They hear Christ offer them forgiveness as they nail them to the cross. If you look further at verse 33 of Luke chapter 23, you'll see when they came to the place called the skull, the crania, Golgotha, Calvaria, three languages all meaning the skull, nickname for this place of horrific execution. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now, note, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. I read that verse afterwards simply to to deliver to you the context doesn't change. They, them, happen to refer to the soldiers. Jesus Christ is... In fact, the tense of the verb he's saying over and over again, Father, forgive them." The context clearly points to an often overlooked fact that, that Christ is not offering this prayer to the religious leaders who've come to mock him. They know what they are doing. They can be forgiven too, as any sinner can. But he's not praying for them at this point. He's praying for this, these troops. He's praying for the centurion. The Sanhedrin knew what they were doing. These soldiers didn't. They, they're just on duty that fateful day. Can you imagine the Savior then with his body twisting in pain with each blow of the hammer with the jolt of his body being raised up and rested on the saddle of the stipes and, and then the hammering of his turned feet all the while he's perhaps looking at them periodically with every blow he's closing his eyes in pain he's writhing in agony and they hear him saying Father forgive them Father forgive them forgive them forgive them forgive them, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing they don't know what they're doing even the Romans would have known enough to know that no Jew ever called God Father and no Roman soldier overseeing a crucifixion had probably ever heard one of the condemned criminals say, I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be forgiven. The centurion had listened to this pilot declared this man innocent. He'd heard Christ warn a group of women that he was not in danger with God. They were, and he gave them compassion and pity. He'd watched Christ refuse to drink the narcotic. He'd heard and watched as as this man offered then forgiveness to himself and to his soldiers for what they were doing. And now I believe at this point, if not earlier, by now this centurion is deeply wondering just who is this the fifth event that strikes me that would have touched the centurion is the pleading of one of the criminals to be given entrance into Christ's kingdom. Now in our last study together, and I can't spend time, too much time reviewing, but we looked at Luke's gospel again where one of the criminals had his eyes opened by the grace of God and the truth of Christ. And he says in verse 42, if you want to look there, he says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when, when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Now, the centurion has seen the inscription. In fact, the, the centurion would have received what we have duplicated here. According to the specs, this six-foot-tall cross is exactly the way they built them. The saddle in the middle. The, the, the condemning uh, subscription by the Roman leader. He's seen it. He's probably wondered. He heard Pilate say he's not innocent. He's being killed because this man is the king of the Jews. And now this criminal hanging beside him says, remember me when you come into your, your kingdom. And the centurion's probably thinking, well, surely not. Surely at this point this man will tell that criminal he's been misled. Do I look like a king? Do I look like I have a kingdom waiting for me? Instead, the centurion and his soldier are more than likely shocked to hear Jesus reply instead in verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Effectively saying, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Messiah. There is a kingdom belonging to me and I have the power to give you entrance. Which because of your faith, I do. After these words, nature, nature now in the grip of creator God lends its effects in a powerful way to give credence to the claim of Christ. In fact, the sixth event would be this total darkness which sweeps in to cover the land. Luke tells us that the darkness blankets the earth at the sixth hour. In Matthew's gospel, we're informed that That it lasts from the 6th hour to the ninth hour. Three hours. The 6th hour happens to be 12 noon. When the sun is at its zenith, it's it's as if an invisible hand reaches out and turns the light bulb off. Darkness sweeps into the land. Covering everything. Matthew tells us in chapter 27 and verse 45, darkness fell upon all of the land. The, the word land, when combined with the word all, indicates that this is not regional, this is global. Sources, in fact, outside the biblical record refer to darkness covering the land they're living in. In fact, Pilate will write a, a letter to, to Tiberius, the Roman emperor, And he will write him a letter, even though Tiberius is not in Israel, during this period of time, he writes to him knowing that he, he has been involved in the darkness. Wherever he was, it was dark as well. Church leaders have written letters to others in different parts of the world. And they agree on darkness that covered the land. No doubt the soldiers quickly started a fire. To keep watch, torches would be lit. The tension would be so thick you could cut it with a knife. In fact, from this point forward, I believe, the tone of everything at the skull changes. It all changes. The rabbis had taught for centuries that the darkening of the sun meant the judgment of God had come. Now, there's a little doubt in my mind that early in the darkness though it will last for three hours, the religious leaders slip away. The reason I believe that is Luke's gospel tells us that when the light comes back on, all of the crowd that is still there after Jesus dies returns to Jerusalem in deep contrition and mourning and weeping for what they have seen. I would agree with... Those who've suggested that this crowd will be among the first to respond to Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, not too far from this event, as they identify with the church of this living Lord. They're about to become witnesses to the Savior being the sin bearer. Keep in mind as well that there were three days of darkness over the land of Egypt before the first Passover. There are three hours of darkness over the whole world during the last Passover. The darkness is the judgment of God who abandons God the Son as He bears the wrath of the triune God and all that expresses itself in the holiness of of God. Darkness falls. And by the way, let me make this point. The world that rejects Jesus Christ who is the light of the world, is a world that chooses then to live in darkness. A person who rejects Jesus Christ is heading for an eternity of suffering in a place called hell that Jesus Christ himself warned of, as he described it, as a place of outer darkness. Matthew eight twelve, As opposed to, To the light of the glory of God. Brilliant splendor in the eternal city. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. See you choose darkness or light. When you choose to receive Jesus Christ. Or you deny him. During these three hours of darkness. Jesus says several things. We don't have time for them all. Each statement is a volume. But I'll draw your attention to one. The centurion Of course, heard, it is the cry of agony and abandonment. Out of the darkness, Matthew 27, 46, tells us, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the centurion would have noticed that Jesus no longer refers to God as his Father. In fact, this is the very first time in all of the record of Scripture where Jesus Christ does not refer to God as Father. There's no intimate communion now. As Jesus takes upon himself our transgressions, Isaiah 53, verse 5. As Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. As Jesus became a curse for us, Galatians 3, 13. As Jesus is delivered up because of our sin, Romans 4, 25. As Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus is bearing the wrath of God by not only bearing our sin, but becoming sin on mankind's behalf in order that those who believe in him will not bear the wrath of God themselves is that you is that your condition you are either in Christ who has already taken upon himself the wrath of God for the sin of the world are you in him you're safe if you are not in Christ you stand alone and you will bear the wrath of God in your own body forever you are either in Christ or you are standing alone. The centurion hears Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What does Jesus not know? Why? In the agony of his suffering, has he forgotten? Is he, is he out of his mind here. Has he forgotten the plan of salvation crafted before the foundation of the world? He has not forgotten. He's not saying this because he needs an answer. He's saying this to clearly connect his dying with the prophecies of Scripture. He happens to be quoting and fulfilling Psalm chapter 22, the great Messianic Psalm, where David expresses his own personal agony and his own personal sense of separation from God, while at the same time, David is delivering prophecies more specifically than he can even imagine of what will take place at the crucifixion of the Messiah there on the skull. He, He doesn't fully understand it. He's speaking of his own agony, but listen to what he says. In Psalm 22, verse 7, All who see me sneer at me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Verse 14. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Verse 15. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 16. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots verse 18 And the psalm begins with verse 1 with these words My God my God why hast thou forsaken me Jesus Jesus is expressing the agony of his separation from his father using the words of that earthly lineage as the son of David By the way, He's connecting His words to Messianic prophecy in such a way that they can go back to the Scriptures and they can see it. They can read it. He said it. He is the Messiah. You see what He's doing here? He's in total control. He's fulfilling the words of Scripture as the Messiah. And then... Just before the darkness is about to lift, John's gospel records that he cries out, it is finished. One word, of course, in the Greek language, to tell us I literally, I've paid in full. The gospel is being delivered in one word. Jesus Christ cries out, it is finished. Would you notice he does not cry, I am finished. <laughs> oh, no. No. The perfect tense of this verb that he uses means, and you could literally translate it, it is finished and it always will be finished. It's finished and forever it will be finished. This isn't the end of the story. You're just about to begin picking up speed. Then the drama In this scene, comes to those words as Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. The centurion would have heard that. Oh, we're back to calling God Father. Father. Jesus Christ did not have his life taken from him, he gave his life away. And he comes to the point where now prophecy is fulfilled. He is paid in those three hours, the penalty being an infinite God. In a space and time, he could pay the, the infinite price. He also said, I thirst, was given some sour wine that also fulfilled prophecy. And now he says, it's time. And so, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. One of the last events that this centurion will see, in fact, this one he'll literally feel, is an earthquake. As Christ bows his head in death, Matthew records that the earth began to shudder and shake so violently that rocks were split apart. Throughout the the course of, of human history, recorded for us especially with Jewish history, an earthquake was a sign of the presence of God. When the law was delivered, it was delivered on Mount Sinai with a great earthquake. As the law is fulfilled, there is a great earthquake. As the the demands of the law are met, God is present, and an earthquake signifies the strength of his power. Even to a Roman soldier, he had seen enough. No wonder the centurion then stood at the cross according to Matthew 27:54 he said he's innocent he's righteous but Matthew records him saying truly this was the son of god it all makes sense the compassion the dignity the control the pity he gave to others the promise of a kingdom Conversations with God as Father, the darkness, the agony of separation, the claim of the superscription, the earthquake. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I deeply resent the notations by some translations that the centurion might have said a son of a God or a son of God simply because of the anarthrous construction the definite article is lacking listen take a couple semesters of Greek and you discover throughout the New Testament this particular title the son of God appears with or without the definite article and there is never a grammatical or contextual question because of the context. In fact, when the angel came to Mary with the announcement of her divinely conceived child, she was told with this same Greek construction, this child will be the son of God. She had no thought that maybe it was Zeus or that he was just some God of, or some son of any God. How ridiculous would that be? The son of the living God to this marriage. We read that Pilate said the same thing. An unconverted Gentile used the same Greek construction when he announced he, Jesus, made himself out to be the son of God. He knew why he was being crucified. He wasn't being crucified because he claimed to be the son of Sidon or the son of Zeus. He was being crucified because he claimed to be the unique son of the only living God. So they were going to put him to death. No question about it. In fact, when the disciples saw Jesus walking toward them on the water, he got into the boat, and what did they say? They said to him, "The same Greek construction, "You are certainly the Son of God." Why would there be any attempt to raise questions? There are no notations in those texts by translators. Could it be just a subtle attempt? water down the gospel because this is the gospel in fact Jesus Christ told Nicodemus earlier for God so loved the world that he gave his what only begotten son literally you could render it the only one of his kind he wasn't one of many sons he was the only he was the only unique son God the Son and whoever believes in God the Son that this man is the Son of God shall not perish but have what? Everlasting life that is the gospel and a Roman soldier is the first Gentile convert after the death of Christ from Luke's account he wasn't quiet about it either In fact the text says in verse 47 And he began praising God I think that's absolutely stunning Here's this soldier, this veteran, this decorated man Given a hundred crack troops He's in command, he's in charge He has been so moved by what he's seen and heard That he declares his faith in this dying man Who by the way actually has already died To be the son of God And then he begins praising God What a scene. The hallelujahs of the cross came first from the lips of a redeemed Gentile centurion. But imagine, listen, imagine, he comes to faith beneath the dead Savior's cross. He believed this dead man was indeed the king with a coming kingdom who was in fact the son of the living God. We, we, we place our faith in him because he rose again and surely he must to validate our preaching and our claim and our faith. But we place our faith in, in him and we're, we're told often to buttress our faith that he's alive This centurion places his faith in him even though he just died. What grand faith is that? And this soldier is the first to begin singing praise to God. Praising God is just that. The hallelujahs then begin at Calvary. Why? Well, the deal's done. Forgiveness is finalized. The sacrifice is sufficient. Christ's own lips declared it is and it will always be finished. You know, that's why the Christian can, can look at a cross and, and do the unthinkable. Do the unimaginable. Sing. Understand with the Apostle Paul and why he said it. God forbid that I should glory save in the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. And so the great hymn texts do just that. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners is was slain. For when I survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. But oh, to see the pain written on his face, bearing the weight of all my sin, every evil deed. Every bitter thought crowning your blood-stained brow. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Why don't you sing with me? We'll try it a cappella. Now the daylight flees, now the ground
4: beam quakes as it's made.
0: Who started this tradition of praising Jesus Christ at Calvary, a centurion and some soldiers who thought they'd seen it all until they saw him and came to understand with enough gospel that they saw and heard that this was the suffering lamb. Who would one day return to fulfill the promise of that superscription. He was the King of the Jews. He was and He is and He always shall be the Son of God. And He is the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. So let's continue the tradition of praise as we strike up the band and prepare the orchestra and ready the choir. You may know enough of the words to sing along this great hallelujah chorus. I know you know at least the last word, so join in when we reach that wonderful point as David leads us all.
1: And so we celebrate for he is the one who reigns forever and ever. Let's continue singing as we share together Christ the Lord is risen today.